This podcast is sponsored by Naked Nutrition. What does it mean to get naked? For supplements, it means no artificial additives. It means the fewest and purest ingredients so you know exactly what's going on in your body. That's what you get with Naked Nutrition. They offer over 40 different products, including a wide range of protein powders and supplements with a strong commitment to transparency. Most of their products have three ingredients or less. Welcome to Language During Mealtime. Certified speech-language pathologist and children's book author Becca Eisenberg brings you creative professionals from the language learning and children's education field. With these ideas, parents can help their children with special needs improve language and reading abilities. Hi, my name is Becca Eisenberg. Welcome to my podcast, Language During Mealtime, episode number 96. Today, I'll be interviewing Adina Lickman. Adina is the founder of Knock Knock Give a Sock, which she started during her sophomore year of college. She completed both an undergraduate and master's degree in social work at NYU. After finishing her studies, Adina decided to take Knock Knock Give a Sock full time. She's in charge of the organization's leadership and operations. When not busy collecting socks, Adina fills her time talking to strangers, painting, and traveling. Adina envisions a world where people are inclusive and working together to make a difference and uses this as her daily motivation. Um, so thank you so much for being here today, Adina. It was, it's, I saw um, her article, I saw Adina's article in Hadassah magazine and I just immediately wanted to connect with her. And that's kind of the beauty of social media is that we could get in touch with people who inspire us. And Adina's story is, Really inspiring. So thank you today. Thank you for being here today to talk about, you know, all of your, yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for reaching out. This is always exciting. New opportunities to spread our message. And Adina is also the author of two children's books. So we're going to be talking about that today as well. So I, so I guess my first question is just the story behind Knock Knock Give a Sock organization, how you started and also so young. You started it. So I, I, if you could, if you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I came to New York City for college. I was here at NYU. I came from growing up in New Jersey, you know, kind of town where everybody knew everybody. I knew my mailman's name. I knew my security guard at school's name. I just kind of knew everybody. It was a very warm community in New Jersey I lived in. And so when I came to New York City, I very, I very much felt like I want to recreate that for myself. So whether it was the Starbucks barista or my neighbor living on the street, I just wanted to make the few blocks of New York City that I was living in feel like mine, right? Feel like home. So I got to know many of my neighbors, uh, including some of whom who were living on the street. So one night I... I had an event on college campus. There were extra sandwiches. I decided to bring some back to my dorm with me and hand them out to some of my neighbors on the street. When one man, Diego, said to me, ma'am, it's so nice you're giving out sandwiches. But one thing we could actually really use are a pair of socks. And I very quickly realized my socks weren't going to fit him. My socks were pink, polka dotted. My foot was too small. So I decided to go and knock on every door on my floor. And in about 15 minutes, I got over 40 pairs of socks. Um, you know, so that's that's basically 
how Knock Knock Give a Sock got started that first night where Diego told me that he actually needed a pair of socks as opposed to another sandwich, uh, which very much instilled this kind of lesson of the importance of asking our neighbors what they need as opposed to assuming the needs of our neighbors. Uh, so it started with that one night, uh, but by the time I was a senior in college, we had actually ended up taking this small little project and spreading to over 20 college campuses and collecting over 50,000 pairs of socks. And I joke that our mission, I joke that, not our mission, I, I joke that um, I became kind of this like sock celebrity on campus. People would ask me to come speak at their synagogues, their churches, their college classrooms. And as I was speaking, I would always ask the audience two questions. And, you know, I'll ask anyone who's listening here to think about these two questions. Uh, have you ever given money, food, or clothing to someone in need? Mm -hmm. And most people will raise their hand either through a donation bin or to someone in person. And then I ask, do you actually know the name of one person experiencing homelessness? Mm -hmm. And almost no one could answer those questions. And these were, were all communities filled with people who were engaging in soft drives, who were engaging their community. And I realized that there was this disconnect between those who were giving and those who were receiving and not actually feeling connected to those people. And so my senior year, I decided to bring 50 of my college classmates and 50 people living in local shelters to have dinner side by side. And by the end of the dinner, we had college students saying, Adina, we can't tell who's homeless and who's not. They're meeting moms who had three kids who couldn't afford childcare. Dads who got out of prison couldn't get jobs afterwards. People working minimum wage jobs, but that doesn't get you out of the shelter system. And that's really how Knock Knock Give a Sock got started and how Knock Knock Give a Sock became an organization that focused not only on providing socks, but on humanizing homelessness. Wow. And how did you organize that with regard to like just getting you know, like 25, you know, you had your, you know, your peers that you were able to, you know, students, but as far as like organizing, um, you know, 25, getting 25 people, like did you work with the shelter or how did that, how did, how did you get that together? So it's a great question. So as I was collecting these 50,000 pairs of socks on college campuses, um, you know, we, we weren't just, giving them out to our neighbors the street. We're actually giving them out to many local shelters. We're dropping them off at many local shelters. And what I learned during that process is that our neighbors on the street experiencing homelessness here in New York City are only 5% of homelessness in New York City. 95% are living in shelters. Mm -hmm. And even more interesting than that, out of the 60,000 people who are homeless in New York City, 25,000 are children. 70% yeah. of those 60,000 are family units and who are living in shelters, right? Who are living with their kids, who are living with their parents, living with their families. Yet, when you ask, what does homelessness look like to the average person? They'll say a cardboard sign, you know, tattered clothes, a long beard, someone with a shopping cart, right? All these things, um, which are very stereotypical or you know, around homelessness and also not the majority. Our neighbors living on the street, they deserve love. They deserve compassion. They deserve care. And it's also important to remember that our neighbors actually living on the street are only 5% of our neighbors who are experiencing homelessness. 
a lot of the barriers that our neighbors experiencing homelessness, you know, feel or, or a lot of these barriers that are put up is around the stigma around homelessness. You know, that's the reason why people don't want shelters put up in their area or housing opportunities in their backyard, right? There's like, a, there's this concept of nimbyism, but a lot of, you know, this concept of not in my backyard, but that stems from very much what the stigma of homelessness is. Yeah, I could totally see that because, you know, it's, it is, I think what you see per se, like a lot of people don't get the opportunity to go into a shelter and to see what that looks like versus just walking around um, and seeing people on the street. So exactly. um, just to get back to after you graduated college. So tell me what that was like, as far as transitioning from let's say being an idea to actually creating this nonprofit organization um, sure. and to where you are today, as far as like, how is the, you know, what is the organization like today versus what it was a couple of years ago? Sure. So not might give a sock, right. It started with collecting socks on college campuses and ended my senior year with doing one of these dinners. Now had not might give a sock stayed an organization that collected socks, it would probably be a project that's still around today, but it wouldn't have been my full-time job. It was this dinner that made it my full-time job. And that's when Knock Knock Give a Sock's mission became humanizing homelessness one sock at a time by turning transactions into interactions. And those transactions were engaging communities in collecting socks. And the interactions were these meet your neighbor dinners that we created. Now, there's something really special about having done it on college campus. But I feel, I very much felt like when I was in college, college students get so many opportunities to do these things. And then they go off to the real world and they forget about all these cool projects that they did, these cool impact initiatives that they did. Or maybe they don't forget, but they end up going to the corporate space and they go on with the rest of their lives and their day jobs. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to engage the corporate world in these meet your neighbor dinners. Like my vision was to get companies like JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Blackstone, getting these communities to collect socks in their offices. And then afterwards, bringing their employees and people living in local shelters to have dinner side by side. Mm-hmm. The reason, the big motivating factor behind this was if you look at any social issue across the spectrum, you look at Black Lives Matter, you look at LGBTQ+, right? We're not where we should be, but the needle has moved forward. We have progressed on these social issues. And the reason is because we're living in a time where everybody has a friend or family member or knows someone who's come out, right? We all have a colleague or a friend who's black or a person of color. You walk into a room in corporate America and ask, raise your hand if you know someone who's experienced homelessness and almost no one could raise their hand. Mm-hmm. It's a problem. Social issues get changed because the issues become personal to people. Right. You can look at big, huge organizations that are doing like cancer research foundations. Right. Why do they get so much money? Because we all know somebody who's been affected by cancer. So I felt strongly that we needed to make homelessness personal and we need to make it personal in a space where people have resources. Quite frankly, that's not college campuses. Right. So um, that's when I decided to take this model of turning transactions into interactions and humanizing homelessness through that way in the corporate space. So Knock Might Give a Sock 
today has three, four pillars of our organization. The fourth pillar we'll get to in a minute. Um, but one, we distribute half a million socks a year while hiring people living in local shelters to help us distribute those socks. The second thing we do are these meet your neighbor lunches and dinners with corporate offices, but also with some local communities as well, young professionals, mom groups, um, synagogues, churches. We work with local groups and our neighbors living in local shelters to have dinners side by side. And the last thing we do is a holiday carnival every year for over 300 kids living in shelters because most of our events are geared towards adults. So we like to have one event a year that is uh, geared around families. So big picture, those are the three pillars of our organization, the socks, the meet your neighbor events and the carnival. Unfortunately, uh, during the pandemic, we couldn't do any sock drives with companies. We couldn't hire our neighbors living in shelters to pick up those socks because no companies were collecting socks. We obviously couldn't do meet your neighbor events. And we had to figure out a way that we would be able to humanize homelessness in a time when people couldn't physically be together. And even more than that, we, New York City went through a hard time during the pandemic. And I think I saw some of the ugliest parts of New York City. I saw petitions against people who were experiencing homelessness, who were moving into hotels so that they could have individual rooms. Um, so they moved out of the shelters into these hotels in you know, pretty well-to-do areas, neighborhoods in New York City. And I saw petition after petition trying to get our neighbors out of there send them back to the shelters, get them out of our neighborhood. I mean, it got really ugly. Um, there were a lot of stigmas and stereotypes and perceptions around homelessness. People felt that their communities were in danger, right? And these are our neighbors who, who really are in need during the pandemic. And I really felt like we needed to do something. Now, that's the, you know, the pretty passionate side of me coming out. Quite frankly, between March and August of the pandemic, um, I felt like I couldn't, I didn't know what to do. I had to let go of my two employees. Um, I had no idea how we could even start to make an impact. We, I wasn't even in touch with a lot of our neighbors from shelters because they were moving from place to place. It was a really difficult time. Uh, eventually by around September time, you know, once we got six, seven months into the pandemic, I was able to start thinking about what we could do. And it was primarily a lot of those neighborhoods thinking about families. How do families talk to their kids about homelessness? What language are we using? Right. And, and that's, and that's where I want to get to the, to the box because, um, because Adina wrote two children's books. And so, um, if you could talk a little bit about those, because, I agree. There's not enough children's books about homelessness. And it's not really something that I thought about until, you know, until we had our podcast, because, you know, when you think about just like diversity in children's literature, there's really not a lot about this specific topic. And I love that you wrote not just one, but two children's books at the same time, um, which, so I, I already said, Dina is 
amazing. Okay. She like, she's just, I mean, I don't know how many years out of college, but already has a nonprofit organization already runs all these events and also writes books. So you're extremely productive and amazing. So thank you. The perks of ADHD, you know? No, I, I, I understand. Own. I totally understand. Um, so, yeah. So if you could just talk about like those two books and, you know, how those, um, how the books were a part of the pandemic and during that time and just a little bit about each book. I'm also going to have a link to um, just a short video. So if anyone is interested to see like what the book's more about, but um, I would love to hear from you. Thank you. Yeah. So it started with actually one book, right? It started with, I had this idea to write this one book called Knock, Knock, Give a Sock. Um, And it was semi-autobiographical if I was five years old when I had this whole experience. Uh, But basically I have a little girl who finds out that her neighbor on the street needs a pair of socks. And she ends up engaging her entire community and her entire neighborhood and collecting socks for Diego. But she realizes that Diego doesn't need all of those socks. And Diego ends up introducing her to all of his friends. She ends up hearing the stories of why her different neighbors are living on the streets and how her giving socks made a difference. And eventually she got nicknamed the Socks Fairy. So that's what Knock Knock Give a Socks book is about. And as I wrote the book, uh, and it was definitely an easier book for me to write than the second one, which I'll get to in a minute. But I realized this is great. This is an important and inspiring message, but we're not really humanizing homelessness. We're telling the stories of the neighbors that we see on the street, but how are we how are we achieving our mission as an organization, right? People walk into our rooms or meet your neighbor events and they can't tell who's homeless and who's not. So I wanted to paint a more full picture. So I ordered every single children's books, every single children's book on homelessness. It kind of fell into two categories. There were books like this first one that I wrote, Knock, Knock, Give a Sock, about people who are helping some of their neighbors on the street without sharing much of their story, But still, you know, this idea of helping our neighbors on the street, I found two or three books on it. Then I want to see if there were books of any kids living in shelters or any kids who were experiencing homelessness. And I ordered, I could only find three or four books and all of them were sad. It's a sad book about a boy living in an airport with his dad. There was a sad book about a little girl living with her mom in the car and like her having to make her mother feel better. There was a sad book, which was like trying to make it happy about a mom and daughter who walked into shelter and they were like, let's pretend this is a spaceship. And they went on a whole journey pretending the whole shelter was a spaceship. But what are the message that we're sending to kids living in shelters? There's no representation for kids who are living in shelters in children's literature Mm -hmm. in which a child is a hero, right? Yeah. The child is the protagonist. The child is it, right? It just doesn't exist. So that's when I decided to write Knock Knock, Where's My Sock? It's about a little girl whose family moves in to a shelter, but during the move, she loses the matching pair to her lucky purple socks. And she thinks, what could I do if I just have one? She realizes that it's too small for a bag. It's too big for a bracelet. And she ends up putting it over her eyes, turning it into a superhero mask. 
And she ends up starting a superhero club where they do random acts of kindness throughout New York City. She engages all the other kids in the shelter to do that. And they get recognized as superheroes. And the idea is you have two girls in two different housing situations who both make an impact in their neighborhood, regardless of their housing status. And because the word homelessness, right, as I mentioned before, has such a stigma, what do we imagine when we hear the word homeless? We imagine the guy in the street corner. We imagine the guy with long beard, cardboard, right? We didn't want kids who were living in shelters to see themselves as homeless, right? Of that stereotype of homelessness, right? So we had to be really careful when we were writing the book. A lot of kids living in shelters don't even necessarily know that they are homeless, right? They just- Yeah, I agree. Because I I also work with, you know, some children who are in shelters and adults. So- Yeah. Mm -hmm. So- we need to be really careful. So actually neither book uses the word homeless. One talks about our neighbors living on the street and one talks about a family that moves into shelter and why. There is a note on the back to parents that talks a little bit about issues, you know, and, and uses the word homeless, but only in the, you know, only when it comes to statistics um, and just some information for parents to be able to talk to their kids about homelessness. Um, so that's when, you know, the two books came to be. And I actually worked with a family living in a shelter when we wrote Knock, Knock, Where's My Sock? And once I had two, I figured it was super appropriate considering we're all about socks to call it the pair of books project. Yeah, I love the that. On the pair of socks. I think it's perfect. I really do. And I like how you're redefining the word, like really thinking about the word homelessness, right? Or like a homeless, like why does somebody have to be defined by that? And if a child views, let's say their shelter, that is their home. So they're truly not homeless per se. So I think that, you know, that's what I I love about um, doing these podcasts is sometimes we, you know, say a word, but we don't, um, we don't always understand the context of it and how it may affect other people. Right, right. A family living in a shelter a child may not see themselves as home, you know, that is their home. So it's interesting. Exactly. And I think it's, I think it's a very interesting thing. Cause I think people get very caught up on the word mm-hmm. homeless. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning I think people are like houseless or unhoused or like, they kind of go into like this, like spiral of all these other words, right. Or housing insecure. I think what a lot of the people who are who are redefining these words are missing is person first, right? Like, yeah. who are they? They're our neighbor, right? You know, for me, if I say someone experiencing homelessness versus experiencing houselessness, I don't think that there's such a difference. I think what I try to put the emphasis on is they're our neighbor, our neighbor living on the street, our neighbor living in the shelter, or even right, our neighbor experiencing homelessness. For me, it's just like, who, how are we defining these people? And to me, it's all about person first. Right. And that's what you're doing with your events is because, you know, like everyone, I mean, everyone I know, or I donate all the time. Right. But, but actually like knowing someone and meeting somebody or sitting and having lunch together, it's really important because it does humanize it because now you're sharing a meal together. And you're talking about each other's stories and you're seeing things in a different perspective. And Mm -hmm. not everyone gets that opportunity. 
to do something like that. So I guess that's my next question is how would people get involved as far as if they want to, you know, anyone in New York, which I will definitely be attending one of these. Um, sure, yes. <laughs> I'm lucky that Adina and I live close to each other. Um, but I'm just curious about for somebody else, like if they wanted to get involved, they live near New York or they maybe they don't live near New York. How could people get involved in the organization? Sure. So there's two ways. Um, we do have individual, we have individual give back opportunities where if you follow us on social media, or you sign up for our newsletter, you're able to hear about our upcoming events in which an individual can sign up to come to Meet Your Neighbor Dinner, which uh, for a while we were doing monthly. And now that we're back to our corporate companies hosting these dinners again, we're doing them like every two, three months. We're having events that are open to the whole community to sign up. But what I do say is the best way to engage is by engaging your community. And what I mean by that is if you're part of a school, a synagogue, a church, an office, wherever it is, school community, whatever communities you are a part of, I would engage them in hosting a sock drive in their spaces, right? It's great if you go into your drawer and you pick out a bunch of socks, but actually it's so much stronger if you're able to engage your community in collecting. And then we'll put you in contact and you sign up on our website to host a sock drive and we'll put you in contact with your local shelter. Um, and if you are an adult community, we don't do this so much with families, but if you are an adult, part of an adult community, whether it's your office place, your house of worship, your community center, et cetera, uh, we also do meet your neighbor dinners in the tri-state area. So if you want to engage your company or community in a meet your neighbor dinner, uh, again, you can reach out to us on our website and set that up for your community and we'd organize it. That's great. I mean, I'm just so excited to have you on to share all this information. So, um, so is there anything else that you want to add before we finish up today? Um, I would say one thing, uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I do like to leave this one last piece of advice. A lot of people say, well, I'm scared to talk to someone who's experiencing homelessness. I'm scared to approach our neighbors on the street. What if I don't want to want money to go towards alcohol or drugs or all these, you know, kind of stereotypical questions that we find ourselves thinking about in those situations. One, I'd like to say, whether you choose to give money or not, I have no judgment. I have no opinion. Everyone should choose and be able to choose freely what they want to do with their money. So whether it's a snack bar or a dollar, your choice, either way, I support it. Um, But also if you don't have anything to give, the most important thing is eye contact. And if someone is saying, hey, does anyone have a dollar? Can anyone spare a dollar in that situation? To actually look them in the eye and say, I'm sorry, sir, I can't right now, but I hope you have a good day. Maybe even learn their names, right? Giving the humanity first, because so many people are just ignoring them throughout the day. Uh, And two, if you're specifically having a day where like, I want to connect with someone who's experiencing homelessness, I want to start a conversation the best place I would start is finding someone who has a cardboard sign Mm -hmm. that's telling their story or someone who may be on a train is telling their story. Anyone who is uh, communicating Mm -hmm. with you or trying to communicate with you. And I always say cardboard signs are like the clearest sign that someone's just longing for human connection. Uh, That's the best place to start. I think that's really good advice because, you know, living in the city for 
lived in the city for a very long time. And it's true. It's, you know, tend to people on the train, you tend to just not look at them. Um, but the eye contact is humanizing because you're acknowledging them. And even if you're not able to give something, just looking at that person and saying, you know, thank you, but not, I can't right now. Exactly. Just acknowledging them and having that connection and interaction um, because it must be really, really difficult to not get any sort of um, reaction from people or, or eye contact. Um, so I think that's really important. I'm really glad you said that. And also just one thing I do want to add is that by, you know, so, so there's so many great ways to teach children about different topics. And I think Adina's books are a great way to also teach children about different, you know, different ways that people live. Um, and, you know, with the two different stories, you know, using those stories to be able to talk about it, um, talk about, let's say the topic of homelessness or what that means to you. And you're talking about the stigma. Well, we could break a lot of that stigma by teaching our children. Right. Um, because that's where kids, you know, kids learn from adults. So as adults, we have a responsibility to teach our children. Um, so thank you so much. I'm like, so glad to meet Adina. She's fantastic. Um, and all of her, <laughs> all of her stuff will be on my website. Um, all of the links, um, to her also on social media to get in touch and also links to purchase her book. So Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This was so great. I look forward to staying in touch. Really, thank you. Thank you. So thank you for listening today. Listen and learn with us at Language During Mealtime. 